Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And over this past year, I've been a teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome our guest, Jason Hedren, author of Things I Wish I Knew Before I Sold to Private Equity. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I really love this book, and you've got good stories in it. And what I love is that they're all real. Um, so that was uh, a great to read. And uh, some those of us who've had companies and sold them before, uh, all of this really resonated. So let's start with giving us uh, about your professional background. Yeah, so I went to the University of Central Florida in the early 90s and got a degree in industrial engineering. Uh, out of college, I was working in a factory that made air conditioning, and I ran the metal shop and did a bunch of scheduling and optimization and a lot of work with our ERP system, pulling data out of the ERP system to optimize machining time and all that kind of stuff. And I just absolutely loved manufacturing. While there, I went to school and I got my MBA, and that opened up a lot of doors for me. And I went to a defense contractor where I kind of had a little bit of a dual role. I did some business development work, but I also was the point person on implementing SAP at the company and doing all that because I had extensive background in ERP systems and kind of how manufacturing works in an MRP, ERP environment. So uh, 9-11 happens, and uh, I got my first stab at being an entrepreneur when the company I was working for, which did defense contracting, had a major change in funding and uh, decided to uh, make a run on my own. Yeah. So why did you become an entrepreneur? I, I kind of joke with my friends that I'm a reluctant entrepreneur. Like that's say the first... same thing. Right. That that first swing was was really scary. So I'm at this company and it's, you know, 2001 going into 2002. And boy, we got a lot of headwinds and there were a couple layoffs. And I just was just looking around going, you know, I don't know that this company's got a future. They wouldn't let me go because I knew the ERP system like the back of my hand. But I just didn't see a future for the company. I thought it was going to go into receivership and it did. Um, and I reached out to a couple entrepreneurs that I knew that I had interviewed with before going into the business, um, that I was working at. So I reached back out to them and I said, Hey, I'm thinking about putting my resume on the street. How's your business doing? And they said, well, we're doing great, but we're thinking about starting a new business. Perhaps you would be a good partner for us in this business. And their concept was simple. They, um, were three individuals. It was uh, a father, his son, and his son's best friend who had a great thriving business who basically wanted to seed a new business with a 25% operating partner. And it was a kind of tangential to their other business. 
and they brought me in and started from scratch, made made some pivots on the business and got that business up and running. And in 2008, after a couple misfires with potential investors and some other things that kind of got messy, they expressed their need and desire to exit their equity in the business. So in 2008, a, a, a great economy, a great opportunity to get financing and investors and all those wonderful things. Uh, we were talking to banks one week and they were gone the next week. Um, but <laughs> I, with the help, with the help of a uh, a local resource, he wasn't even really an investment banker or um, even like an exit planning advisor, but he was just somebody who knew everybody, understood M&A and had done work in investment banking and had done work in uh, uh, debt debt strategies and uh, asset-based lending. He introduced me to some folks, helped me out, and got me a banking relationship that funded. And the way it was set up, it was funded half by the bank, half by the sellers, where I was able to acquire 100% of the business. And at that point, it was kind of off to the races. Well, uh, when you read the book, you've got great, great stories in there throughout. So why did you write this book? Yeah, so, you know, as as most entrepreneurs know, it's a journey, right? You, you, you grow, you have people that come in and out of your business over time. You, you know, you make investments, you make risks, you, you do all these different things. But ultimately, that that journey becomes a story. And as I was going through my personal journey, in 2000, really, it started in 2011, we started having a lot of interest from private equity groups. And we were manufacturing energy efficient lighting. And back in 2011, everything was, you know, high intensity fluorescence, LED hadn't come around yet. And there were all these private equity groups that were really interested in, in investing in the lighting industry with the knowledge that the LED wave was coming. And I had the same investment advisor that helped me on my first deal. Um, I expressed to him that we were getting all this interest. And, you know, at a bar on a white napkin, somebody taught me what a leveraged buyout was. And and a and a lesson that I've given many friends over cocktails and a, and a bar napkin. And I, I kind of said to myself, I'm like, you know what? At some point in time, I'm going to write all this stuff down that I've learned because there was no way to learn it really before I went through it. You know, I I had gotten, uh, I went to school, got my MBA. There was never a leveraged buyout class. There was never an add-on acquisition class. You know, there wasn't anything that went deep into what a cap table was. And there certainly wasn't anything that spoke to, you know, the the journey of being an entrepreneur. So in 2019, um, I was, I was, I knew my my runway out of the business had started and I started by just outlining you know the the different the different topics that I were the different topics that I didn't know some things I got really lucky on and I was like you know I just want to kind of start writing all this down and the process of developing the book started well how long did it take you to actually write this book Wow. Um, you know, I think start to finish was about three years. Um, I started in 2019. I was <laughs> I was I was surfing in Indonesia um off these off 
these islands off of Padang and I was on a boat with a bunch of my buddies and I brought my laptop saying, I'm going to have some downtime. I'm going to start this book. So I started kind of putting together just the very basic outline. And then in the beginning of 2020, I left the business and I was ready to go travel. I was ready to go surfing. I was ready to go visit family. I was ready to go do all the things that I love and COVID hit. So I set up the computer in my spare bedroom and I said, you know what? I'm writing this darn book. So between, you know, the beginning to the end of 20, I wrote the first draft of the manuscript. And then I got in touch with a publishing house who said, hey, you know, this is a great start, but we want to put you with a book planner. And I spent time with their book planner who helped me develop a more robust outline. And, you know, you had mentioned the stories in the book. On my many calls with her, she had said, you know, all of these lessons are great. And when we talk about them, your examples and your stories bring them to life. We need to bring that into the book. So then the process of setting up the next draft started and, you know, chapter by chapter, you know, it was just, you know, it was, it was a draft. It was a rewrite. It was my wife's input, which was incredible. Um, you know, I kind of, I kind of mentioned in the acknowledgements that she really lived this entire book. She remembers when all this stuff happened. So I would write, you know, an anecdote in the book. And she's like, I remember when this happened. I remember everything you're telling me, but it doesn't come through. We need to rewrite it. So that process took another year. Then it went back to um, the publisher to go through, you know, making sure that the grammar was right and develop all the, you know, the cover art and everything. And then it finally launched in the beginning of 23. It was a cool journey. Uh, I've written six books and I always have friends who tell me, oh, I, I'm going to write this book. And they rarely ever do because the amount of discipline it takes to write a mm -hmm. book. Um, very few people have, uh, unfortunately. I would hear great titles from them and they had great experience, but uh, they wouldn't do so. Uh, congratulations on doing it. So Thank you. what did you like most about being an entrepreneur and what did you like least? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll start off with what I liked, I liked least. You know, when I, when I started down that path and I kind of made that first jump, I thought that being an entrepreneur meant I was going to have freedom. And, and really what being a successful entrepreneur in my experience meant was that you really had to live, you know, eat, sleep that business. You know, I used to always joke the business doesn't own you or you don't own the business. The business owns you. True. And every every triumph and tribulation and, and adversity, everything that happens within that business is 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 your yours to live. So, you know, what I liked least about it was there was just really never a good way to turn it off. I couldn't just post up in Costa Rica with my wife and turn everything off and just hope everything was going to be status quo because it just if I was gone for, you know, two, three days, it was bad. I couldn't go for a week. So you always had to be tethered to the business. But what I liked best about it was, you know, again, I started this in a partnership. You know, when I when I bought my partners out, you know, we probably had, you know, 15 employees. When I did my first private equity deal in 2012, we probably had 200. Um, and, and what I liked best about it was when you build a business and scale it like that, especially for me, it was manufacturing. It was something that I knew well. You know, we had a factory, which meant, you know, there were 200 people coming to the same location every day. 
you could really build something that is an extension of your character, an extension of your values. Um, I had a team that I worked with that were, you know, kind of handpicked, you know, most of my executives on, on my team as we grew were people that were with me for a very long time. My head of sales, it was his first job out of college and he was with me for 15 years. Um, you know, I, you know, I was with him when he got married. I was with him when he had his first mm -hmm. child. I was with him, with him when he finished his MBA, you know, I was with him every step of that way. He was handpicked and I groomed him and, you know, his values were an extension and an expression of my values. And as the company grew, the way we treated our customers, the way we treated our vendors, the way we treated our employees was all a reflection of my values. So it, once that was at scale, it was kind of cool to look back and say, hey, you know, I did this, what I believe to be the right way. And now having been out of the business for a while, vendors and friends and customers who still come to me and say, man, those were great days when you guys were growing and you always did everybody right. And I think that was the best part of going down that journey. We've all heard about investment bankers, but very few of us actually have dealt with them. What do they actually do and how does it work? Well, I'll start off by saying the term investment banker covers a really, really wide margin of expertise and activities. Um, my wife and I are in the in the process of watching Suits right now. We just watched the season where Mike Ross goes off and he's an investment banker and he's you know trading public shares and all this stuff back and forth. And yes, there are investment bankers who do that type of work. But for a middle market operating company, somebody you know, in that realm of, you know, three to 25, you know, even 100 million of, of EBITDA type of, of business, the investment banker is your representative that bridges your desire to sell with the universe of buyers. So when I explain that to folks, I explain it like a realtor would represent the sale of your home to prospective buyers and they work on your behalf. And then typically someone on the other side will have somebody that works on their behalf and they'll help structure the deal and structure the process to get you the best price in terms and ultimately get you to the closing table. And at a very high level, that's what an investment banker does. And then when you kind of get down in the nitty gritty, it, there's a lot more to selling a business than selling a home. <laughs> So, so what's your advice about dealing with investment bankers and what criterion did you use to evaluate them? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you the first thing is, and, and this is something that I do with a lot of my clients now that I, I do more exit planning. I don't want to teach an investment banker about my industry. So if I'm representing a client that does a software system, I'm going to find an investment banker that knows software. They've done software deals. They've done software deals in the realm of what my client is doing. The same thing for, I had a client who was in construction. We hired an investment bank who knew about construction and knew about how companies were valued of new construction versus service construction. You know, I, I have one company that I'm working with right now that is just an absolute very narrow niche manufacturer of a very specific type of product. Our investment banker on that deal does three deals a year, but only in that one realm. And almost everything he does goes to strategic buyers. And sure enough, he said exactly what he was going to do. 
delivered on it and we're in diligence now under LOI doing a deal for a very fair value and everybody's very happy with the process that that's taking right now. Everyone reads about private equity, and, and, and but what is it and how does it work and what size companies do they typically work with? Again, you know, similar to investment bankers, you know, private equity is a very broad term that covers a lot of folks. But, you know, through through my aperture, through my lens, what private equity really is, is when people, investors, firms are using private funds, which means they actually have money to to spend and invest. And they're investing within the realm of a an area that they know well. So, for instance, a private equity group could be involved in real estate and they want to buy industrial buildings of a certain scale in a certain region. And that's what they deploy it for. In my experience, being a middle market manufacturing company, operating company profitable, you know, when we dealt with private equity groups and there's a lot of them out there that fall under this description, we're working with groups that have typically a fund of, you know, anywhere from a hundred to $500 million and they are out there looking for businesses that they believe that they can acquire using a combination of equity from their fund and leverage, which they borrow from the bank, and use their expertise to grow and increase the value of that business in a way that gives a return to their investors that is greater than what they could get through the public equity markets. And my experience has been that many of these funds are incredibly successful at doing that. You have funds that are, you know, five, six, seven generations old where they've raised a fund, deployed a fund, exited the fund, and then run that process forward. And they can consistently produce returns that far exceed that of the public markets. What's your criterion for when you're picking like a private equity group? They have scouts and or other uh, ex CEOs that go around looking for deals. Oh yeah. How do you how do you go about if somebody contacts you and you've been contacted by quite a few private equity groups to buy you? Mm -hmm. How do you decide which ones that you'll actually talk to, and which ones you'll be agreeable to negotiating with and ultimately selling to? Like, well, what's that whole process look like, and how do you evaluate them? Yeah, so so Mark, really what you're referring to there is is a direct source deal. So we we had the conversation earlier about an investment banker driven deal where you have an intermediary who's marketing your business to a wide range of folks. Hopefully you're getting a bunch of IOIs, indications of interest, you know, initial thoughts on the value and structure, narrowing that down to LOIs where you have you know, folks who are, you know, basically want to go under exclusivity, they've narrowed in their value range, they've done some diligence on the deal. And now you're, you're talking about, you know, the other side of that. And I lived on the other side of this as well, which is a direct source deal. And a direct source deal is when somebody picks up the phone and calls you and says, hey, congratulations on all your success. Congratulations on everything you've built. Have you ever thought about selling? And now what you're doing is you're getting into the realm of communicating directly with an investment professional about the sale of your business that almost certainly would involve you 
reinvesting some portion of your equity. So when, when that call comes, and, and I've advised many people on getting that call, the first question that I always ask is, A, do you have your own fund? How big is your fund? Because there are folks out there that don't have their own funds, and they'll try to source deals and then go out and get money. Um, I'm always just a little bit cautious on, on that, and I would always strive to validate where their, the source of their financing comes from. The second thing is, are you looking to buy my business as a platform acquisition or as an add-on acquisition? So I'll give you an example. I, I have a very good friend who has a gutter company. And he called me up and he said, Jason, someone's trying to buy my company. I said, okay, what are they trying to pay for it? He says, ah, they won't tell me. I'm like, okay, so what do they want to do? Well, they bought other gutter companies and they want to buy my gutter company. I said, great. Just go back to them and say, tell me what multiple of EBITDA you're willing to pay for my company and if you're going to require me to make any reinvestment. I said, that should narrow down where they're at pretty fast. And nobody wants to answer that question. But the reality of it is, is that when they call, just say, hey, I, I need a range because you'll have these guys come in and they're like, oh, I'll give you two times EBITDA and I want you to reinvest 25% of your proceeds. <laughs> They'll tell you that after you've wasted two months with them, maybe pulled in an advisor, maybe even pulled in a lawyer. And then you get there and you're like, well, why did we even have this conversation? They knew what they were going to offer on the business. They know what their range is on values. And then they're going to kind of, you know, navigate it from there. So, you know, when you're dealing with a direct source person in that nature, it's always prudent to ask a lot of questions understood understand how your business is going to be set up is it going to be a platform or add on to something else and and try to narrow into the value pretty quickly because you know they they want to see your financials they want to have a conversation they want to get under nda they want to do all these different things and and really at the end of it you know value and structure what and when I say structure, am I an add-on or am I a platform? You know, how are they going to handle my business? What are they going to do afterwards? What are they going to want me to reinvest? I, I like to try to needle those conversations earlier in the in the timeline rather than later. Although sometimes I'm successful at that, sometimes I'm not. A question from the audience: When you sold your business, are you taking care of your employees, making sure they aren't cut, or do you just take the deal and run? Well, in my experience, and I, I can only talk about what I've done in, in my timeline, when my company was bought in 2012 by Finkston Partners in Chicago, they were very clear that this was a platform for growth and that they had an HR specialist on staff and their entire message to us was, it is critical that we maintain a team, maintain your employees, and set ourselves up with a mindset of growth. So in that scenario, A, I was the platform acquisition, and B, it was a growth play. I had strong earnings, strong growth, and they wanted to continue that both through organic growth and the desire to grow through acquisition. So, you know, in that scenario, my employees weren't a concern because their whole strategy was build, 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 build. The alternate side of that is when you're bought as an add-on, when a larger company is buying you to be part of their bigger enterprise, it's always a good thing to have a conversation about what their synergies are. What are the things that they're hoping to you know, build value with scale, whether it's HR, maybe accounting, 
um, you know, insurance, you know, the different types of things that they're going to want to consolidate at their home office and then understand what that means for the employees. And if they're going to let employees go, ask them how they handle things like severance or, you know, helping them get new jobs or, you know, giving them the opportunity to relocate. You wrote about the reasons someone would sell their business. Are there good reasons to actually sell a business? You know, I, I think there's three. I, I think I think the first one is that the the proceeds are life changing. Um, you know, that was that was my scenario back in 2012. We were given an LOI on a direct source deal. Um, and my wife and I looked at it and said, oh, man, if we do this, this changes the script for us. So for us, it was life changing and we didn't want to be the ones who turned down life-changing proceeds because we thought there would be more proceeds in the future. The second reason I think to sell your business is you're looking into the future and you don't think the future for the business is very bright. So for instance, there was a point in time that if you looked into the future at Blockbuster, you had good reasons to be worried. There was a technology change coming. Maybe somebody got a head start on you. Um, you know, there's there's always reasons why, you know, you could say that the changes in the industry, the changes in technology, the changes that are happening on a macroeconomic level aren't going to benefit this business very well. And it may be time for you to get out. You know, the last reason, and this is this is the reason that affects a lot of folks today, because there's a large number of entrepreneurs that are baby boomers that are getting ready to exit their business. And the, the reason is simple. It's just time to go do something else. You know, you've built your company, you've built your wealth and your children don't want the business. They're off doing their own things. And it's just, it's just time. It's time to go fishing. It's time to go be a, a grandparent. It's time to, you know, maybe pick up that other hobby that you always wanted. And, you know, time's ticking and wasting time on this business just isn't good anymore. So I, I think those are really the three reasons. It's life-changing money. You worry about the future of the business and the industry, or it's just time to go do something else. Um, what are the What are the wrong reasons to sell your business? Well, I, I think the wrong reason to sell your business. Well, first of all, you know, I, I don't think there's ever a wrong reason to liquidate an asset if you feel like you want to liquidate an asset, whether it's selling a home, selling a car, selling a bond, selling a stock. If if you want to sell that asset and you're getting a value for that asset that that you you know feel like it's worth, you know, I'm not going to tell you it's wrong to sell your business. But I will say it's wrong to make the decision to sell your business with a reinvestment if in order to make that financially make sense, everything in the future has to work out. So, you know, when you sell your business, you're going to have your proceeds at close. You're going to have to pay your taxes and all of your expenses on that. And that's going to be what you get from that deal that's guaranteed. The earn out, if there is one, is not guaranteed. A seller note, if there is one, is not guaranteed. Reinvested proceeds, no guarantee on that return. You know, I was with a friend recently who was in a very large transaction that had a reinvestment and a seller note and an earnout, and all three of them went to pop because the person or the group that bought their company just made all the wrong decisions. And had he made the decision to do that transaction based on all of those things being successful, 
it would have been a very bad transaction for him. So I tell my clients, you know, when we're working on an exit, make sure the proceeds you get at close are significant enough for you want this deal to happen and not count on things that might come in the future. Can't agree with that more. Seen too many of those kind of deals. Mm -hmm. Want to get as much cash up front and the idea that you're going to have an earn out. What's the point? You might as well keep the business. Yeah, I mean, so I, I'll give you I'll give you my two cents on an earnout because I I do think earnouts have value. So, and this you know I, I speak to Vistage groups, um, and I I, I basically teach them a co- course called Exit Planning for Entrepreneurs, and we talk about earnouts. My opinion on an earnout is: let's say you're selling a business, and I think the market multiple on that business is a six, but you think it's an eight, and you think it's an eight because you're going to grow so much in the future or you have these contracts that are on the street and you know they're going to come in and you want me to pay for those contracts. You know, you've opened a new location. It's not making money yet. You put, you know, an ad back for all the expenses and you know those new locations are going to be successful. I think a great way to handle that is through an earnout. Say, okay, well, I'm going to pay you for what I think the business is worth today. But if all these things that you've told me are going to come true actually do come true, which would justify a higher multiple, I'll pay you the higher multiple. And I think that's the right way to look at an earnout. I don't like earnouts when it's just kind of, you know, seller financing with no interest. I, I think it's a way to get an above market multiple or a premium multiple by delivering on things that you've promised to a buyer. Um, you list 10 questions entrepreneurs need to consider when selling a business. Uh, what are some of them or what are the most important questions? Well, the first one, I think, is what do you want your life to look like after you sell? And this isn't this isn't a financial question. This is kind of a personal journey question. And this is one that I failed on miserably. Um, you know, you, you have to go into one of these transactions with the knowledge that it could go bad. And you might reinvest, you might have an employment contract, but you work at the pleasure of the board. And if the board decides it's time for you to go home, you have to go home. You're not an entrepreneur anymore. Now you're an employee and sometimes you just have to go home. You need to have a plan for what your life is going to look like after this business with full knowledge that that it could happen two, three years from now. I think that's really important. Um, Another thing I think is really important is, are you an add-on or a platform? When I was first approached in 2011, about selling my company. I had an IOI, there were discussions, but we could never get to the LOI. And I found out later it was because we were supposed to be an add-on to a company that they were trying to get under contract to buy. I had no idea that I was going to be number two and that someone else was going to be number one. So, you know, I, I really think it's important to understand the cultural and the financial differences between being an add-on or a platform company and having an understanding of how that goes. A uh, couple other ones I'll run through real quick is, you know, understanding the structure of a leveraged buyout, understanding how debt and equity and your reinvested equity come together to create the cap table of the company and how that equity is shared, and understanding if their equity has a higher value or a better return rate than yours. Um, you know, I talk a lot in the book about aligning your employees. I think that's absolutely critical. Um couple other things, uh, what to expect during diligence, um, what other things affect your proceeds. One of the things that we see on deals all the time that's entrepreneurs stumble over 
is working capital balancers where there's, you know, a cash-free, debt-free transaction, then a working capital component to keep everybody honest through the transaction. And we spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs on almost every deal going through what is a working capital balancer? How does it work? How does it work in your favor? And why could you owe more proceeds later after the deal? So I, there's, there's, a couple, there's, there's a couple more in there, but I think those are some of the high levels. Um, you write that most deals don't close. Why is that? You know, there's there's no one reason, but what I've found often is it's usually the seller that shuts down the process, not the buyer. And it's 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 usually because the seller gets into the minutiae, into the details of the transaction. And they're like, well, what do you mean I'll have an escrow? What do you mean, you know, I'll have reinvested proceeds? And they start really digging into what an acquisition would mean for their company, for their employees, for what it means for them personally, financially. And, and they start, and this is what I see a lot is they'll realize that they have a lifestyle business. And, you know, the definition of a lifestyle business is a business that provides you substantial income that allows you to lead the lifestyle that you're accustomed to that the proceeds from your sale would never be able to sustain into the future. And a lot of times sellers will hear a big number or hear a number that they think is going to make sense for them. Then they figure out their taxes and their fees and reinvestment or all these other proceeds and realize that's just not enough money when it's all said and done. And I think that's the biggest impediment, especially to doing smaller deals. When you were acquired by a private equity firm, you wrote they wanted to grow through acquisition. What did you learn from that experience? <laughs> well, I hope my good friend Jim Norton is listening from Finkston Partners. What I learned from that experience is don't listen to the private equity guys. <laughs> Jim was Jim was the the senior partner at Finkston and a dear friend and someone I respect greatly, but he was absolutely convinced that my investment was going to be an add-on play, which meant that they were going to buy my company at my EBITDA and that they were going to go out and buy complementary businesses and that that was going to be the way that they were going to get the return was by packaging together these smaller companies into a much larger enterprise. And then that much larger enterprise was going to sell at a higher value and get them a return. He underestimated my ability to grow the business organically. We, in four years, did over 300% increase on our bottom line EBITDA. And even though we looked at many acquisitions and had a bunch of them under contract, we were growing so fast that we were afraid of upsetting the apple cart. And our growth rate and our not only our top line, but our EBITDA and our technology conversion and our margins, I mean, everything was just firing on all cylinders. Um, it was just, it didn't make sense to do an add-on in that scenario. So it's 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 always a big joke between us that that we didn't need the add-ons to get the return. Uh, you write about surrounding yourself with the right professionals and wrote about how a deal was almost cratered by a client having an inexperienced attorney. I actually experienced that in a venture capital deal with one of my clients. What yeah. expertise should be on your team and what criterion do you use for each of these experts? Yeah. So, you know, you brought up the attorney. So let's let's start there. <coughs> you know, I wouldn't go to a family law attorney to 
settle a tax issue. And similarly, you shouldn't use, you know, your everyday transaction attorney to negotiate a purchase contract for the sale of a company. And I'll give you a little bit more detail on that one scenario that I was in. We had a seller who was dead set on using this one attorney and we couldn't get through the LOI. And finally, I brought him my purchase contract, which looks like a small phone book for those of us who remember phone books. Um, and I brought it to him. I said, this is the document that we're going to have to negotiate. I can't get through the LOI. Please hire an M&A attorney. You're in New York. They're everywhere. And he refused to do it. And we walked away from the deal just for that reason. So the first thing is have, have an attorney and have that attorney in place before you sign the LOI. Um, the second thing is whether it's an investment banker or an exit planning advisor or a business broker, but but have somebody in your corner that understands M&A, understands deal structure, understands some of those things. Don't just sign an offer that someone gives you on a company based on what you think the top line number is and without getting through the details and having somebody on your side. Then, then you kind of get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty. Uh, first thing is make sure that you have a good financial advisor that understands um, what proceeds you need to maintain your lifestyle, your spending, depending on your age. You know, do you have children that are getting ready to go to college or are you approaching retirement age? Um, have somebody that can advise you of what after-tax proceeds you need in order for a deal to make sense. Um, I'm a big fan of the financial planning profession when it's done right, and and I certainly rely on mine quite a bit. Um, another thing that I think is really important is to have an employment attorney, not an M&A attorney, but an employment attorney on call, because if you're required to sign a, a um, employment agreement, you want that handled by somebody who specializes that. And more importantly, if any of your employees are, if any of your employees are getting documents, especially restrictive documents from the buyer that are required to sell, you pay for the attorney that covers all of their stuff and make sure that all of your employees are independently represented by somebody who's going to do their employment contracts. Um, another one that I think is really important, you're going to have a windfall from the sale. Have all of your state and a trust work done before you do the transaction. Make sure that if you're going to have some type of asset protection plan, you do it at the time of the transaction, not some point in the future. The, the concept is that you want to do those documents on a clear day when there's no issues, no no car accident or dog bite that could put a claim against your estate. You want to have all this done on a clear day and all that money secured before you know anything comes up. So make sure that that's something that's done before you have a big windfall coming. Um, that's I'm trying to think. You know, business brokers. You know, obviously, I'm an exit planning advisor. I help folks get their house in order before they hire an investment banker and run a process to get them the right investment banker. It's a profession a lot of folks don't know exists. And, you know, there's not a lot of folks out there with my background that are helping uh, entrepreneurs and business owners navigate this process in this fashion. So I, I think it's a really good, um, a really good service that helps entrepreneurs a lot. Question from the audience. Did you and would you stay on board as CEO of the company once bought by a private equity firm if they wanted you to? Or do you just want to leave clear and free? 
Well, for me, and I'll just kind of go through my personal timeline. I was a selling CEO in 2012 with a significant reinvestment. I was, again, a selling CEO. So I stayed on all the way through our sale in 2017, made a significant reinvestment, was the CEO for a short time after that deal closed and transitioned to a president role when we did a merger with another company and then stayed on for three years. So for me personally, yeah, I did it, wouldn't wouldn't have done a thing different, um, was happy to reinvest and stay on as a member of the management team. But I also I also did my first deal when I was 40. Um, you know, there are entrepreneurs that I work with that are at a retirement age that make it very clear that, hey, I'm selling this business to make a uh, transition out. And they have that conversation with the buyers ahead of time. And there's a strategy for seeking out and transitioning the leadership role. So, you know, I. I'm a big fan of when you get the right private equity partnership that you reinvest and stay on and you bring in new expertise and capital that gives you the best opportunity to grow that business to a level that you probably couldn't have grown it on your own. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that, that strategy and that um, way to do business. When doing a deal, who pays for your legal and accounting fees? And if it doesn't work out, what happens? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) Mark, we're all familiar with sunk cost. That is a sunk cost, my man. If you get into a transaction and your legal fees and your accounting fees and all of that are your fees, you pay them and there's very little way to recover it. People often talk about a breakup fee in deals and from time to time you do see those things happen, um, but it's really hard to capitalize on a breakup fee. Because if the deal breaks up because of something that was misrepresented or something that people couldn't come to terms with or, you know, quality earnings study turns up that the earnings of the company aren't as as originally anticipated or or originally communicated, then those breakup fees are really hard to actually get. So when I'm getting into a deal with my clients, I tell them every penny you spend from this point forward is your money to spend and there's no good way to get that back. How often does an acquirer actually buy the company itself and not just the assets? Because I'm used to hearing mostly asset sales and why do acquirers prefer asset sales? Well, there there are two and and I am not the biggest expert on this type of deal structure, but from my experience, there's two really good reasons to do asset sales. One reason is that if you buy assets and not equity, you're essentially shielding yourself from any of the liabilities that existed in that business prior to you owning it. So you buy the website, you buy the machinery, you buy the equipment, you buy all of the stuff, and then you transition the employees onto a new new plan and new, basically everything goes to NUCO and the equity of that business and any liabilities that existed there, you don't carry forward. The second reason to do an asset plan, asset sale is that you can restart the depreciation on a capital intensive business. So if, if a piece of equipment has got a depreciation horizon for 10 years accelerated depreciation, 
when you buy that asset, now you can restart the depreciation scale based on the current asset value and now start your own accelerated depreciation. And it could really help in the early years on taxes. Um, good reasons on the equity is sometimes contracts or other things um, really need to reside with the equity of the original company. So you want to own the equity of the company. Or if there's a reinvestment, the structure of the reinvestment might have some reasons to do an equity purchase. A lot of times you'll see a combination of assets and equity where they're buying the assets so they can restart the depreciation schedule, then buying the equity at the balance of the value. Um, when selling your business, at what point do you tell your employees and what do you tell them and how hard to fight how hard should you fight to keep their jobs? Well, let's let's start with the the last one first. Every entrepreneur is different when it comes to the longevity of their employee post-transaction. Again, I express that, you know, in my situation, there was no discussion of any employees being let go. There was no fight to have. But if you're an entrepreneur, there is a possibility that at some point in the future, somebody may want to buy your business and Let's say they're going to consolidate your manufacturing operation into a manufacturing operation of a company that they own out of state, which means that your employees will probably all be let go and laid off. You know, at that point, you know, how hard do you want to fight for them? Well, the one way you can fight for them is to make sure that they get a good severance plan or that they're taken care of. You may decide that, hey, you know, the legacy of this company, we've been in this town for 50 years, we're not going to change course. If that's what they want to do with the business, then we're not a seller. That happens. I've seen other entrepreneurs say, hey, every one of these employees would leave me tomorrow for another dollar an hour. And I got to do what's best for me because they would always do what's best for them. And that's not untrue. You know, I was I was with a group the other day talking about, you know, employees and Someone in the room said, you know, the our employees were were family, were, you know, we we stick together, our culture is important. And it was really just a really emotional, heartfelt, like, you know, we're a family. And to this entrepreneur, he 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 believed that. And my my comment to him was, I'm exactly the opposite of that. I've never seen anybody when faced to choose between their work and their family ever pick the work. Their family is their family. Their job is their job. If you pay people a fair wage, treat them with respect, never put them in harm's way, and never ask them to do anything that is you know, outside of their moral code, then they'll be good employees and you'll have a good working relationship. But to think that you know, you're somehow above their family, you know, sometimes that's, that's you know, asking a lot of somebody. On the other side of that, if you have an opportunity to sell your company and it is at the right value, the right structure, the right thing for your family, you may want to reserve some of your proceeds to make sure to take care of those people if they are going to, in fact, lose their jobs. But, you know, sometimes the entrepreneur puts puts their personal interests first, and I'm never going to tell anybody that that's wrong either. Communication wise that you had touched on the communication piece. I always think of it as a waterfall, and that waterfall always starts with your CFO. Um, don't don't send your CFO an email that says, hey, I need three years tax returns, trailing 12 EBITDA, and a breakdown of our margins. They're going to know what the question's for. 
you know, be 100% transparent with your CFO, because in those early discussions, when they're talking about the financial performance of the company, you you got to have your CFO on board. And then from there, it's a waterfall on a need to know basis. Um, I was always very transparent with my team and my transactions, but I also was sure to align my employees with my transactions. And part of that alignment is to make sure that they're bonused and they understand that that selling the company and bringing in a new owner, creating a new partnership is in their best interest as well, and doing that through financial means. I did make the mistake to not do that once with a couple of salespeople who actually had bonuses coming that they didn't know about and left while we were under LOI, and that was very disruptive. Um, You write that private equity firms look for, uh, what do private equity firms look for when making an acquisition? Is there anything that surprised you that you would want other CEOs to be aware of? I don't know that I would go so far as to say surprised, but you know, when I was being evaluated in my first sale, I was shocked at the breadth of diligence. They were basically doing a complete analysis of my business from the standpoint of what that meant for them as owners. Everything from how was my security on my servers to make sure we weren't subjected to a phishing scheme to, you know, they were looking at the fire protection in my server room, the um, the compliance of my 401k plan. I mean, they went through everything that they would want to know about that business as an owner of that business. And I always thought, you know, the due diligence process was, hey, we're going to scrub the financials, make sure the customers are happy and we're good to go from there. So, you know, I would tell a selling entrepreneur, and I do this with a lot of of my clients is, you know, anticipate what is going to be done during diligence and prepare for that. So for instance, I'm working with a client right now and I said, hey, you know, before we get too far down this process, let's bring our, our legal advisor in and let's scrub every one of your customer contracts to make sure that there's an assignability provision or that there's nothing in there that voids the contract at transfer of ownership. You know, anticipate those types of things because those type of questions will come up and make sure that you do as much of that legwork ahead of time as you can. Uh, I've led a few companies that have been acquired and the first time I made the mistake of focusing on the sale of the company and not continuing to drive sales, which ended up in them offering less money and my shutting the deal down. What advice do you have when negotiating your deal? Should CEOs of the acquired company, uh, what can they do that they won't hurt themselves or hurt the valuation of their company? Well, I'll, I'll give you the anecdote that uh, the, the first uh, private equity guy that I was working with on my first deal gave me. He said, run your business like you're going to own it forever or you're going to own it forever. And, and really, the message there was, if you have a high growth business, don't take your foot off the accelerator. If you have, you know, a really, you know, strong culture with a high level of communication, continue to communicate. If you would typically hire one to two more salespersons a year to support the company, keep doing that. And the the challenge that you get into is you find yourself making decisions or holding off on decisions because of a deal that may or may not close 
And then you pick your head up and you've kind of maybe not killed the golden goose, but you may not have fed it very well. What um, you mentioned the book that when you were bought, uh, you were an add on company, which you've talked about earlier here. Uh, and it leads to a bigger business life. Is the, is the difference for the leader of the acquired business? Please talk about that. So what's the difference for the person being acquired? Specifically between an add-on and a platform business. Yeah. So structurally, if you are a platform acquisition, that means that once you're acquired, there is one CEO, there is one CFO, there's one head of sales, you know, the management team is in place and you're creating a brand new balance sheet for that company with your reinvested equity, the equity from your private equity group, and everybody's kind of starting off fresh. If you are acquired as an add-on acquisition, all of those positions already exist. So you really need to think through well, if you are a reinvesting entrepreneur, what what does that mean for you and your position? Because your control on that company is very limited. You may be a fraction of the overall profit of the company. For your key employees, what, what does it mean for them? Do you have key employees that are going to have to relocate or be top graded or maybe just let go altogether? Maybe you know, their accounts payable department is somewhere else and they have the capacity to do your accounts payable. So your accounts payable group doesn't need to be there anymore. Um, those are all things that you want to think through because realistically, after the transaction is done, if you're an add-on acquisition, there is going to be a synergy plan in place of how, you know, as, as they always like to say, it, one and one equals three. What does that synergy plan mean for your business? What does it mean for your sales team? Is it going to mean that they have to have a bigger region, smaller region, more products, different plan? Um, all of those things come into play. Just as important as all that, if you're a reinvesting entrepreneur, your shares are going to roll onto the balance sheet of a company that already exists. It is completely within your right to try to understand what the value of those shares are on the open market, understanding that it would be a cash-free, debt-free transaction. So if your company that's acquiring you is going to issue new shares for your reinvestment, what's the dollar value of those shares? And is that the right dollar value? Because if you don't check on that, and I've seen this happen where somebody acquires a business, let's say it's six times EBITDA valuation. They create a new balance sheet and say, we're going to sell this business for 10 times. And then they want your shares to roll on to the business at eight times. And you're like, well, you just bought that other business for six times. And it's like, well, we, we think it's worth more now that we own it. And now that we've bought you and you're like, well, I want my shares to roll on at the six time valuation, not the eight time valuation. There's no guarantee that you're going to get to a 10 and that my shares are going to appreciate. And I've seen that uh, sidetrack deals before. You know, it's really important to understand what the balance sheet is of that company and understand that when it comes to that company, the balance sheet and the valuation of those shares, there's a big asymmetry of knowledge. They know a lot about that business. They know what they acquired the primary business for. They know the market multiples because they're out there buying businesses. They know if that business is hitting some headwinds. They know, they know where that business is. So they're going to have 
more knowledge about the true valuation of that business than you will. And sometimes you just have to roll the dice. And this goes back to the conversation that we had earlier in the discussion that you need to be very happy with the proceeds you're getting at closing because none of that stuff in the future is guaranteed. Um, question from the audience. When a, P, uh, when a private equity firm is interested in buying our business and wanted to talk about the top five customers, I said no, but they insisted and eventually I gave in. What advice would you have in this regard? Well, you know, one, always have an NDA in place, but some of the NDAs are not worth the paper they're written on. So if somebody wants to see your top five customers, the first time you give it to them, the names are redacted. You're like, hey, I'll show you who the top five customers are as a percentage of our overall revenue, maybe even you know what their contribution margin is. But if they really want to see the names of those customers, they want to see what that company is, I would want to not have that part of the first discussion. I, I'd want to be pretty close to at least being under LOI before I do that. Then if it's a strategic buyer, you need to make sure that there's some type of language, not only you know a non-solicit, because they might be doing business with those clients already, but work with an attorney to get some protections in place from them trying to go after your, um, your clients. Just as important, and this is something that gets overlooked a lot, if somebody is trying to buy your business and they're a strategic buyer, they're in your industry, make sure you have something in your non-compete language, your NDA language that prevents them from soliciting your employees. They may come in and see that you have an all-star head of sales, but there's nothing preventing them from saying, hey, we're not buying that company, but we're going to go hire that guy. And that's could be really problematic and that does happen. So make sure that that's in the agreement before you start disclosing who your top performers are. Um, what role is AI playing and going to play in the sale of companies? I can tell you that I use AI now to, if I have a client that comes on that's in an uh, industry that I'm researching, I will use AI tools to find deals that have been done find out who investment bankers are that have represented those deals. Um, you know, traditionally there's paid services like PitchBook that give details on, on deals and kind of act as a central repository for that type of information. While not as complete as those services, I found that using AI to research deals has become actually really good. I wanted to research something that was in a very niche industry um, very technical and pathology. And I used AI to find out who the major acquirers were, what deals had been done, and actually get some get some valuable information about deal structure. I want to say thank you very much, Jason, for taking the time to speak with us. And the book is a great read, and it's an thank easy you. read with great information uh, in it. And especially for people who are looking to buy or uh, sell companies, it's very insightful. So I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today and uh, wish you the best. Thank you for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a good holiday. We'll resume again uh, on January 5th. So uh, we're taking some time off as well. And I uh, hope everyone has a safe holiday. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. 
Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.